I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attacked, where we impact your life and try to make sure that you have less strife, whether it's your husband or your wife. We don't even care. We make it clean like Nair takes off hair. Beyond repair, we wax poetically and we think emphatically. And we can't stop and we won't stop. That was so great. The only rhyme I got was wife. I'm like, I hope he says wife. I hope he says wife. (laughs) (laughs) And you did and you said so much. So here on Art Attack, we are here with Lizzie Dastin, professor of art history, probably the greatest art history professor that I've ever sat in on, and myself, Justin Boo, artist. And today we are talking about an artist that is uh, incredibly famous. Uh, some describe him as the most famous artist alive. Uh, I would say probably the one of the most successful artists, monetarily speaking. And I don't know where you stand on what side of the fence you stand on with Damien Hirst because he's a polarizing artist. A lot of people hate him. A lot of people love him. A lot of people, he gets reactions out of people one way or, or another. I mean, he's, a, he's, he's one of those British bad boy type of artists. Uh, but I want to know, really start with you about giving a little context of Damien's work and who he is. And then your opinion. Don't give me the bullshit opinion. I want the real. I'll give it to you straight. Okay, I good. never give lie. It to me straight. No chaser. <laughs> no. Let's go. Neat. So Damien Hurst is among the YBAs, and it was a really popular group in the 1990s, the Young British Artists. Okay, I was like, what is that acronym, YBAs? Yeah, the YBAs, but that's kind of how he is originally defined and grouped. And the other artists who are notable in the YBAs, we have Tracy Emin, Rachel Whiteread, Jenny Seville. And all of these people were scooped up by Charles Saatchi, and perhaps that's why Hearst's work really started to sell, because Saatchi is an- Saatchi from- The Saatchi Gallery. Okay, the Saatchi Gallery. Gotcha. Yeah, so he had this model for collecting that I actually think is really gross. He would go to MFA schools, buy out everything because he had that much money, wow. hoping that one would pop. Because if one does... He's got it. Exactly. It justifies the expense that he made. So for me, the reason I don't like that is because it is so commodified. Commerce. And- Right, and I understand that that is a reality when discussing art, but it just feels so literalized in such a hideous way, and he would just take that art and box it and never look at it again and just index it and then hope to resell. But anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent. And and another tangent that I think is important, you know, especially because it's interesting, but somebody like Asachi somebody like Gagosian and certainly Costelli back in the days, Leo Costelli, they make you. There are certain incubation galleryists and certain curators and certain people that are so powerful that if they deem you the dude or the woman or the man, the man, who doesn't matter if it's a man or woman, but you know what I mean, the shit, you will be famous. You will sell. Because at the end of the day, if you boil it all down, it comes down to connections, not talent, sadly, but connections. And so Saatchi was one of those powerful, 
you know, entities who can make you or break you. And it's pretty incredible that you mentioned Gagosian in that list, really prescient, because Hearst is also represented by Gagosian, and he just had his most recent show in that gallery. Don't you think that Gagosian is like, I mean, Gagosian is this super powerhouse, entrepreneurial, mysterious man who could who will buy a work for 100000 and flip it for, you know, $10 million the next day. And Gagosian, just a little real side, side, side note, used to, <laughs> used to hawk posters at UCLA, used to actually sell prints of mine on the college campuses. Now, this, this, this dude's flying private jet, and everyone's like, yo, I hope he you know, buys my work and puts me in his gallery because he can make me. It's true. And we can talk about this Gagosian show in a little bit, but you asked my opinion. And I love Damien Hirst's early work from the 90s. And the work that he has produced most recently in that show, I thought was so derivative of himself and so lazy. And it was really disappointing. But mm. to get to the stuff that I think is really toothsome and incredible and engages in this wonderful... Toothsome. We're going to back up on that because yeah. I don't think anyone in the world knows what that means. Toothsome. It has yeah. a lot of bite. There's a lot of content in there. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm going to add do. that to my to my <laughs> your little rapscallion. You. Oh, you had to get that one in there. Yeah. Assiduously, you worked for it. Yes, I did. <laughs> so he really explores the central theme of death in his work, and the mode of installation or the way that he works changes, but that is the leitmotif that connects all of his projects. And he perhaps is best known for his shark installation, which is called The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. And we have to spend some time talking about that title because it is poetry. I think it is such a beautiful title that really shapes the way we experience the work. So the physical impossibility of death, mm -hmm. which is true. We all have death as something that we know we're going to find at some point that's going to mm -hmm. find us, but it's terrifying. And so I think this exchange between the shark, which is a, an actual dead shark, it was killed. And I don't know if it was killed for this project. I suspect not. I think it was caught and killed and he happened to buy it. And the shark- Taxidermied. Yeah, taxidermied and floating suspended in vats of formaldehyde. And what's so scary is that the shark itself looks animated. Mm -hmm. Its mouth is open. And when you encounter it, that you don't ever want to encounter a shark. So to come so close to a death by shark attack, so it could be that. It could make you feel your own impermanence. And what I experience when I see this work is that death is completely unavoidable, that even if we try to embalm something, it's still going to win out. And I say that because the original shark that Hearst submerged into this vat ended up decaying so badly that he had to replace that shark with another one. So even though it is soaked in these preserving chemicals, death still wins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny because... There's a famous story uh, that I heard Damien Hurst tell on Charlie Rose way back when, uh, where a construction worker was in the museum and finds one of his pieces and throws it in the trash. <laughs> and it just goes to show you, like, and he liked that, by the way. Damien Hurst was, like, cool about that. He was like, yeah, I really like that story because it shows you, like, uh, one man's trash is another one's treasure. And, and his work is, I mean... It's so weird. It's a taxidermy shark. So it's way out there. 
And a lot of his work is way out there to the point where the, you know, the average person is like, is that trash? Is that junk? And uh, by the way, that construction worker is now an art critic. So, no, I'm kidding. Um, so, but for me, you know, I look at his work and there's, I love that title. I think that's incredible. It's poetic. It's, uh, you know, it has, a, it has a mystery about it. And I like his attitude, and I always think that he's a very able, articulate dialectician. He's he's verbal. He's he explains his stuff cleanly. He makes you think. He's disruptive. You know, it's he makes you think about art. And I like, I guess, his philosophy about art more than I actually really enjoy his work. I just like I look at that and I go, God, why is this in the stratosphere of art? Like, why is this in the stratosphere of Picasso or Rembrandt or Leyendecker or Rockwell or anybody? And that's a linear way of thinking. I understand, but I really like his. The way that he philosophizes, he's like, you know, if you have a tree that's standing vertical and the tree falls down, all of a sudden it's at a 90-degree angle, and then it's affecting everybody, right? So you have to drive around the tree. It's disruptive. You see how actually big the tree is. You see the details of it. And all of a sudden, it's like art. You know, art is making us think about a different way of thinking neurologically, emotionally, spiritually. Art is impactful. And I think that that's what he's ultimately trying to do with his art. He's trying to say that my art is going to make you think, whether you're, you're polarized by it, whether you hate it, whether you're a critic, you think it belongs in the garbage, whether you think it's the greatest thing in the world. We're reading our own stories into these and weaving our own stories into us. And he's allowing us to think so he's, I feel like he's very cerebral in that way where he likes the, you know, art is an important thing. You know, people don't give importance to art in general. I mean, the NEA doesn't, the National Endowment of the Arts, and, and schools don't, right? So that's so strange. But yet his philosophy is that, no, 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 no. You need to give importance to this. This is making us think critically. This is making us think outside of the box. This is making us innovators. The, you know, and I believe that that kind of thinking is super healthy. I believe that creativity and artists are the future because everything else can be automated. But you can't create like that. You know, you can't think like that. And part of art is really training your brain how to think critically. And I think that that philosophy is always expanded upon in 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 his in his philosophy about his own work about why it's here i don't necessarily see that shit when i see his work <laughs> you know what i mean but i definitely hear it and i go wow that's that makes sense like i i, I think i i listen to him and and i and he waxes and i just go wow that really does make sense and when you gave that metaphor of the tree falling and how that's art and everybody has to acknowledge it and accommodate it, I think that with him, it's specifically this trope of death because that's something we want to avoid. It's a really difficult topic to even acknowledge. And not only does Hearst really show us that in such an aestheticized way, but I think that he also adds some kind of celebration to this weight of eventuality. And I see the celebration maybe less in The Shark, but in his more recent work, I think he moves into that space. But with The Shark, it's also displayed in a really elegant way. And it reminds me of the display strategies of the minimalist artist. So he has minimalism, like the work of Donald Judd or Saul LeWitt, and then he has this dead floating shark in it. And you're right, it is 
one man's treasure and another man's trash. And the critics at the time certainly would agree with the trash Mm. analogy. And there was this one article in the press that said $50,000 fish and chips or like it was a fish and chip analogy. And I think it was $50,000 for fish and for the, yeah. So that was really interesting. Mm. And his work has since just continued to climb meteorically and the money that it fetches, which also adds to the controversy. And he did this one work called Love of God. And this is a more recent example that, in my opinion, also celebrates death while Everything is death. It is, really. That is the central motif. It's It's it's, all death. A lot of artists (laughs) do that. Woody Allen was very... Is very focused on art and death as well in his plays and in his writing and his comedies and his dramedies. He actually says, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. I just want to be there when it happens, <laughs> which is very funny. That is funny. So in The Love of God, mm-hmm. we have a mold, a platinum mold of a skull from the 1700s, a human skull. And Hearst had this. Have you seen that one? Of course. Yeah, it's incredible. So he had a platinum mold made, and then he had the actual teeth removed from the skull and then reinserted into the platinum mold. And then he has, I think it's 8,000 diamonds Mm. implanted in this work with this huge diamond in the forehead sort of functioning as a third eye. And it is a literalized version of a memento mori, which is a reminder of death. If you think about Hamlet and the great soliloquy, he's holding a skull and talking. But even more so like the Dias de la Muertes, it's very, it's very you know, Mexican, it's very Chicano. There's, they dress up the skulls all the time. I mean, I feel like that was, to me, that was derivative of that. I mean, that's what I first thought of. I was like, oh, that's very like, you know, very cool Mexican artistry. And he like kind of stole it and made it Beverly Hills. Well, I, I think that that was an intentional <laughs> reference, but it is death decorated. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to sell this work for $100 million, <laughs> and it That's caused great. a lot to make. I, I don't think that that much less than $100 million. And so the controversy came that he released it and nobody seemed to buy it, and then this really shady anonymous person bought it, and so people assume it was him. That is so Banksy <laughs> of him, you know what I mean? A little bit. Maybe he's Banksy. That's the crazy shit right there because <laughs> may, he's so clever and so successful that I wouldn't be surprised. And I'm sure he's definitely friends with Banksy, but that wouldn't that be amazing if we found out at the end of the day, Damien Hurst <laughs> I was would like, love that so much. He and was Clark Kent disappointed. <laughs> and then Banksy was his Superman. Fun. Cool little analogy there. Yeah. So going back to the importance of his titling, the title of this work, Love of God, what does that mean to you? What does love of God mean? Yeah, just how do you interpret the title love of God? That he is in love with himself because he thinks he is God. (laughs) That's so cynical. Because he's a a psychopathic narcissist. (laughs) All right, that's one interpretation. Another might be the pursuit of spirituality, of some sort of community that's larger than one that you can see. So a love of God, a love of something. But it's funny because the genesis of the title was actually an anecdote that he shared with his mother that he was telling her about this piece. And she goes, for the love of God, what are you going to do next? That's funny. (laughs) She wasn't even Jewish, right? 
That's just the way that I speak. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> sure, for the love of God, what are you doing? I don't know when you do that. Mate, for Mate, the love of God. Yeah, for just for the love of God. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense because the way you were like, for the love of God, what's the matter with you? I don't feel very that's well. That's the best impression of me I've ever heard. But I do think that's really interesting because we can interpret even the titling from a multifarious place of perspectives and that for him it was not nearly as esoteric as this concept of spirituality and religion and community for him it was kind of a a forward-thinking almost humorous nod to how is he going to innovate next what do you do after casting this old human skull and then inserting eight thousand diamonds in it yeah you know and and then this goes to like this is becoming like it, it becomes like insane like this whole world right now of the Damien Hurst and the Jeff Koons. There's like a certain amount of very, there's this ivory tower of artists and he's in that tower, which is amazing. It's probably a fun fucking place to be. Like it's some crazy type of money place to be. So at this point, to top himself, because you said his newest work is like derivative, feels derivative of his own work. But it's funny because you get to a certain point and you're like, well, what, what am I doing? Like I got all the money in the world. I'm not really, most people work to survive. Most people work just so they could put food on their table and, you know, feed their kids and go get, get an education. Most people, the average person, that's what they're doing. They're just surviving. He's at the level right now financially where he's just such in a place to just do anything. Like, really, right? So he's not in a survival mode. And we think about artists historically. You know, a lot of them were in survival mode. Like, I got to create this, otherwise I won't eat. I got to create this, otherwise, you know... The king's gonna, you know, cut my throat. I gotta, uh, you know what I mean. He's in a very unique position, uh, like in the one percent of artists who are like, I'm gonna fucking disrupt. I'm gonna create. But and and there's and there's something like, I'm I'm saying that with cynicism and envy at the same time. Like I envy that position to be in a place of your artistry where you could be like. I can do whatever the fuck I want to do. I'm an artist and I got six commissions going on right now. I got a bunch of projects. I got like stuff that I have to do to pay the bills. That's my bill paying stuff. And then I'm like, I'm going to get those done. Then I'm going to do a painting that I really, 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 really want to do for me. It doesn't mean that I don't want to do these other ones. I do. But at the level, he's at that level every time he creates. Or, sorry. I have so Or, no, but, or. Is he not? Is he a slave to his own yes, customer? That's a what I was just A slave to the say. gallery. A slave to be different. Much like you don't see rock and roll anymore. I mean, it's been a long time. The Beatles had hits and hits and hits and hits. Now, you hit, you got 50 million downloads, and there's like, what do you got next? You're like, oh, shit, I got to create something right now. It was so slow, the rollout back in the days. But now it's like, boom, you're a hit. What else you got? Boom, it's a hit. Cool, what else you got? You always have to up yourself. So I wonder if he's got that pressure. So now I'll let you talk about that because that I see both sides of that as an artist and as a struggling artist and as a successful artist. I can see both sides. I think that it must be incredibly stifling within a creative space. Sure, the money is amazing. He probably makes millions of dollars upon every sale, but there's the expectation that all of his work is going to be about death in some regard. Even his spot paintings, which are probably his most aesthetically pleasing, they are about death. It's a stylized look at a pharmacy installation that he did also in the 90s. But I think of him in the same way as I think of somebody like Cindy Sherman, 
who's one of my favorite artists. I hope that we do an episode on her. But oh. the work that she did in the realm of self-portraiture and masquerade in the 1970s with her untitled film stills was wildly significant. And then her next project, she would do herself in some kind of grotesque manner. And so with Vomit, and then we see the Cindy Sherman series where she's in clown getups. But when I saw her work, the comprehensive collection of it at the Broad a couple years ago, it just felt, okay, well, this is Cindy Sherman as blank. This is Cindy Sherman as blank. And it's because as a viewer, we have that expectation that she is going to be masquerading as something. I'm sure she finds creative energy within that opportunity, but I also think that it must be a little bit oppressive. And so with Hearst, it's the, a similar deal that he is in this, um, or with an, a plat, uh, platinum handcuff, where he sort of succumbed to this world of creating some kind of dialogue around death. And I don't feel bad for the guy, but I do think that there are probably limitations to his practice because of his success. Yeah. And I think that his soul is rotting because I don't think that he's ever going to understand how to draw and paint well enough. And I think deep inside of his real id, like deep, deep, deep there in his guts, he wants to really know that he can draw and paint from like from an expressive and, and soulful place. And I, I think that he's probably sick to his stomach every day. And then he creates some really <laughs> weird, crazy, fucked up shit and then does some crazy drugs and then has some crazy sexcapades. No, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying, I think that, I think it's possible. I think that, I think that any artist that doesn't understand the like nature in a, in a from a drawing perspective, forget about painting, just from drawing alone, is is somehow um, will always never have that feeling of satisfaction. That's my own personal opinion that I'm probably projecting, but I know it to be true on a deeper <laughs> level. <laughs> so speaking of sickness, this yeah. is a great little segue into his installation work of the pharmacy. So I believe it was in 1992 and it was at a gallery in New York. He completely transformed the space into what looked like a typical pharmacy with all of these pills and he would arrange things so that pills that were related to the head, head ailments would be at the top and then pills related to the gut would be in the middle and so on. And so he sort of indexed the body through these fictitious medications. And what I think is so interesting about this little installation is not only the history of it that links to Oldenburg's store or a grocery store installation takeover that Warhol did in the 60s. And so there is this historical precedent of creating art spaces and changing them, recycling them into something that appears to be commercial but isn't. But what I've heard her say about this work, which I just think is brilliant, is that we as a society are so quick to just accept the medical gaze, medical opinions, whatever is told by your doctor, you willingly do. And yet we're so critical of art and we problematize everything. But when it comes to the medical space, we are completely infantilized. That's, that's, that's heavy. That's actually heavy. You know, and I, I think that that has a lot of layers to it. I mean, obviously it almost goes like it, that just in general, big pharma and just everything. It's just, it's It's got a lot of weight. And I think that Damien Hurst once again, has a lot of, uh, a lot of gravity to his work, whether, you, whether you absolutely can't stand it, uh, whether you absolutely love it, 
you know, I think Damien Hurst is definitely, I, like I said, I really like to watch his interviews. I know that sounds weird, but I feel like I, I learn a lot about the philosophy of art. Uh, that doesn't mean that I like his work or that I dislike his work. I'm kind of like in the middle. Some of it I, I like, some of it is provocative. Some of it I'm just like, are you get the fuck out of here. You're out of your mind. <laughs> it's uncomfortable for me to look at his work, I think, because it's uncomfortable for me to acknowledge the eventuality of death. And so I think that's, that's what he is trying to encourage his viewers to examine. And so I see his work both as incredibly conceptual and meaningful within that, that realm, and also sometimes really aesthetically pleasing, like the spot paintings. So yeah. the spot paintings emerged from the pharmacy installation, and he basically took, essentialized the look of the pill and then turned them into those polka dots of different colors. And before we end, I just wanted to circle back to this Gagosian show and briefly explain why I thought it was derivative. So the show was mostly made up of these spots, but the Damien Hirst aesthetic is that it's a spot with room and then another spot, and so they don't really intersect with each other. And these, there was much heavier impasto, and all the colors were sort of overlapping with each other, and it just looked very pointillist, and it was just like, what else can I do with my spots? And I didn't see any innovation in that, and that was a little bit disappointing. Also, every single canvas was that. Okay. Well, now Lizzie is on my side. No, I'm kidding. You, <laughs> but no, I think he's an important artist to look at, so check out Damien Hurst and also give us a review on iTunes because we do this because we love it, and we do it for y'all, and we do it for us because we love art. And we're glad that you love art and you love listening to about art. And no, 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 let me say that again. I love you guys.